This is the San Francisco Experience with Jim Herlihy. Independent commentary from a Silicon Valley, California perspective for a global audience, featuring newsmakers, thought leaders, and authors. Season 18, Episode 4, Power Failure, The Rise and Fall of an American Icon, in conversation with author William D. Cohan. Our guest today is New York Times best-selling author Bill Cohan to talk about his newly published book about General Electric. Everyone in America at some point in their lives has bought, used, or benefited from a product created by General Electric, starting with the humble light bulb to radio, television, home appliances, medical imaging equipment, jet engines, and more. Their motto, we bring good things to life, still resonates with the American consumer. Their products stood for innovation, reliability, and good value for generations. Founded in 1892, GE was synonymous with progress, but they floundered in the 21st century. Joining us today from his office in New York is author Bill Cohen. Hi, Bill, and welcome to the show. Hi, Jim. Thank you for having me again. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Bill, first of all, congratulations on your new book, The Financial Times, The Economist, and The New Yorker, all three have rated Power Failure as one of the best books of 2022. Again, congratulations. That's that's quite an honor. Well, thank you. I must say I never would have uh, expected those three to join together in unison, but uh, I'm very privileged, feel very proud to, to have that honor. Bill, how did you come up with the idea for Power Failure? I'm always sort of in the market for a grand sweeping narrative, almost an autopsy, if you will, of something that's gone wrong and uh, wondering how it happened. I wrote a book about the collapse of Bear Stearns. Mm -hmm. I wrote a book about how Goldman Sachs managed to avoid collapsing, a book about the Duke lacrosse scandal, a a book about friends of mine from high school and how their lives ended tragically. So I guess the theme is that here was this once uh, incredibly powerful company, as you outlined uh, in in your opening, the most valuable company in the world, the most respected company, with a CEO who was called the manager of the 20th century and Jack Welch. During the last 20 or so years, that a company went from that lofty position to being almost you know, irrelevant. And now uh, we're at the precipice of it dividing itself up into three companies no longer being in existence, no longer being the GE that we all knew and appreciated. So that was you know, a mystery I wanted to know. Mm-hmm. How, how did that happen? You know, and since I had worked there for two years after graduating from Columbia Business School in 1987 to 1989, I spent a year Uh, financing leveraged buyouts of all things in New York. And then I spent a year working for the chief credit officer in Stanford, Connecticut, where uh, GE Capital, where I really got to see all aspects of uh, how GE Capital operated. And then you combined all, if that weren't enough, uh, Jim, you combined that with the fact that my office mate, when I started at GE Capital, was a guy named John Flannery, Uh who stayed at GE, and succeeded Jeff Immelt as the CEO of GE for 15 months before he uh, was whisked away in a, in a coup by Larry Culp and others. Uh, and so it just became uh, something that I could not resist. And then when Jack Welch agreed to uh, spend time with me and give me on-the-record interviews, well, that was that was the the last, all, the, all, all, all that I needed to decide to go forward. One of the things that really impresses me about the book is your access. You have access to the key players, to the key dramatis personae, if you will, in this uh, GE drama, starting with Jack Welch, the fabled CEO, followed by Jeff Immelt, the CEO, and then John Flannery, the third in a succession CEO, as well as Ken Langone, who was a director, Gary Went, Dennis Naden, 
Dave Calhoun, to mention but a few. Terrific access. And again, so your book rings with the voices of these men who were calling the shots for right or for wrong. How did you get such uh, such terrific access? Well, that's always a mystery, a bit of a mystery, and my wife always wonders how that happens. Part of it is, you know, I hope my reputation for being you know, thorough and fair and telling it like it is, even though, you know, it might not necessarily shine the best light on the individuals or the company. I think part of it is wanting to participate in a definitive history of that and making sure that their points of view are known. Part of it is uh, ego. And part of it is, well, if Jack uh, Welch is participating, he's going to you know, fill your ears with his point of view. I better participate to make sure that <laughs> uh, my point of view is also included. And in addition to the firsthand accounts from the key players in the GE drama, you also bring a financial analyst perspective to the GE narrative, given your own investment banking industry expertise. And you, you referred to that early on. And again, let's not forget that this is a big financial story. General Electric, as of the end of 2021, was still a major corporate entity with $198 billion in assets, total equity of $40 billion, albeit a net loss of $6 billion, and 168,000 employees. So I think you were, you were uniquely positioned with your financial background and having spent time there at General at uh, GE Capital to, to bring a, a real credible and technical point of view to the narrative. Well, obviously, you know, I try to pick topics where I can uh, use my knowledge and wisdom that I've gained as a banker for 17 years on Wall Street. Probably wouldn't bring uh, much to the table for, uh, you know, a book about the uh, decline and fall of coral reefs in Australia. <laughs> but, you know, when it comes to American corporations uh, that are uh, with a big financial uh, component, to them, and it, it, before it was sort of dismantled, GE Capital was providing something like 50% of GE's earnings. I can really think make a difference and make it worthwhile uh, for readers to you know dig in. I mean, it's obviously a big book, and you know you have to be committed to it. And you know, frankly, I'm a believer in there's a, a great story, uh, well told. More of it is is okay by me. As much as I love Bad Blood the Theranos story, I could have used more of it. I felt like some editor said, oh, no, it's got to be 315 pages. If it's a page more, no one's going to read it. <laughs> I don't agree with that, obviously. And mm -hmm. you know, maybe I kind of write the books that I like to read. And, uh, you know, I like a great story, a good yarn well told. You know, this sort of had all the great characters and the arc of the narrative of it being, being founded in the late 19th century, almost going out of business a year later, in, 18, in, the, in the crisis of 1893, and then thriving under Jack Welch, you know, he took it over when it was a $12 billion, the company had a $12 billion valuation, and when he left, it was around $600 billion. So that's an accomplishment, and then to have it sort of dissolve, sort of right before your eyes, I mean, if, if Apple suddenly dissolved after being worth $2.5 trillion, we'd all look at each other and say, what the heck just happened here? i got to know more about that. Mm -hmm. And that's what I wanted to do here. Well, let's start with Jack Welsh, the, the first of the three, four CEOs that we're going to talk about today. His reign as a CEO lasted from 1980 to 2001. And of course, during that period, the, the 80s and 90s, he by far was America's corporate golden boy. So let's start with uh, let's start with Jack's administration and tell us about the imprint that Jack made on GE. It was massive. I said he took over in 1981, when the market value of GE was $12 billion. by August 2020, about a year before he retired, uh, it was $650 billion. So, you know, he made it the most valuable, most respected company in the world. So that's quite an accomplishment for a guy who was an only child, whose father was a train conductor mm -hmm. in uh, on the North Shore of Massachusetts, and his mother was a, a homemaker. You know, Jack was singularly focused. 
he got a job in Pittsfield, uh, Massachusetts, trying to commercialize GE's plastics business. Uh, Lexan did an incredible job making that a simple product incredibly valuable. Or, you know, we, that was during the whole sort of phase when plastic replaced aluminum and steel and other things in cars, for mm-hmm. instance. Well, you, we all know how much of a car now is made of, of plastic. I mean, that was really uh, Jack Welch's doing and GE's doing. And uh, he sort of rode that tiger to huge success at GE until he was running the light bulb division. He, he took over GE Capital, which had started, was really called GE Credit, and had started in the 1930s during the Depression as a way to uh, help consumers who couldn't uh, pay for GE's appliances that, so they could afford them, they could buy them on credit. And GE made that credit available. And then Jack realized, and he told me this many times, that it was easier to make money from money than it was from making money by making, say, an aircraft engine. Could, you know, obviously imagine. Well, that's that may be true, but let's just come back to Jack for a minute because he was a very hardworking, self-motivated guy. Here was a guy from, as you as you mentioned, from from modest background who went off to University of Illinois, got a PhD in chemical engineering, and then came to GE as and really followed the industrial track, kind of an industrial tradition of GE. That says a lot about, first of all, he's a very smart guy to get a PhD in chemical engineering, number one. But number two, to apply that to the more traditional industrial arm and tradition of General Electric, he was he was singularly qualified, in a sense, to, to certainly run that plastics business, but to run the other businesses too with that qualification. Well, I mean... Of course, you know, he didn't want to be a professor, uh, which is sort of one route that you go with a PhD. He, uh, you know, I think was offered a job uh, working for Exxon. GE was willing to pay him a little bit more uh, after a year. You know, he thought he had done, uh, you know, an incredible job and discovered that he was getting paid the same amount as his peer group, who who he didn't think that highly of. So he he decided he was going to leave and go to another company and then he was basically talked out of it by a guy who became his rabbi and he sort of skipped over the boss that he had that you know he didn't uh, like and he didn't think respected him and sort of latched on to this rabbi who just watched out for him from then on Mm -hmm. and you know he was really much more of a of a salesman than you know a chemical engineer per per se i mean Mm -hmm. he just uh, got people to uh, rally around him, to to have fun with him. He was a real big into sports and hockey and golf. And, you know, he was just a kind of a guy that other guys uh, like to be around. And mm-hmm. so he was a very inspirational leader at Plastics and at every other uh, step of the way. He was obviously a fast learner, but I, I think his, um, obviously he did a great job running the industrial uh, businesses that he was in charge of, but he, an extra sort of light bulb went on uh, when uh, he realized that he could arbitrage GE's AAA credit rating at GE Capital and make a heck of a lot of money. Now, when you met with him on many occasions, but when you met with him, at least initially, what was your initial impression of this man after all of the the books that had been written about him and the uh, the aura that surrounded him. What was your personal impression of him one-on-one? Because at that point, he'd already retired, right? Oh, yes. He, he was uh, already retired. I think I first met him in August of 2018, and he died in March of 2020. So he was not in the best of health. He was you know, physically you know, diminished. He was never a big guy to begin with. So, But his, his spirit was very much there. His intellect was still there he i sensed that he must have figured you know this was going to be his last shot at getting down his uh someone taking down his thoughts looking back at his uh legacy and his career and i think you know even before i could sit down at the nantucket golf club for lunch he's uh you know spewing his version of venom uh, out about you know the mistake he made naming jeff 
Immelt is his successor. And oh. by then, of course, Jeff had been fired from GE and John Flannery was actually soon to be fired from GE too. Uh, you know, so the thing looked like it was spiraling out of control. So Jack obviously was not a happy camper. But I did, you know, say, but Jack, your main responsibility as the CEO of GE, you know, in addition to creating huge wealth for your shareholders and to making it incredibly respected, was to choose your successor. You chose Jeff Immelt. You could have chosen anyone in the world. Yeah. And you chose Jeff Immelt. And now you think it was a big mistake. Please help me explain that. So what did he say? What did he say to that? Well, he... He kept reiterating that he made a mistake and that he had been, you know, essentially snookered and seduced by Jeff Immelt because, you know, it's sort of as I dug into this more and more, you know, Jack actually made a fundamental error in judgment mm. when uh, the, pro- the, pro- by the process by which he had been selected uh, as GE CEO by his uh, predecessor, Reg Jones, mm-hmm. was something he kind of resented. He didn't like that. And Reg Jones had brought the five finalists uh, up to GE's new headquarters in Fairfield, Connecticut, and had, you know, given them their job as overseeing the various parts of GE. But uh, Reg Jones could watch them on a day, day-to-day basis, sort of, he could watch them in the cafeteria. He could watch them in the hallway. He could watch them, you know, in the men's room or whatever. And he could see sort of what really made them tick. Mm-hmm. And he could see their characters day in and day out. And out of that a process, uh, Jack emerged, even though he was the youngest. And, uh, you know, some people thought he should not have been selected. Now, Jack didn't like that because Jack thought it was some weird beauty contest. And he thought that everybody was preening and, and he just didn't enjoy that. And he, decided he was not going to do that when he was choosing his successor. And he thought he had like come up with this brainstorm of an idea, which was that he would leave them uh, out in the countryside uh, where they were operating their businesses. Jim McInerney was running the jet engine business. Mm-hmm. Jeff Immel was running the healthcare business. Bob Nardelli was running the power business and leave them in their places, whether it was Schenectady or Cincinnati or Milwaukee or whatever. And they would come to Fairfield quarter to meet with him or to sit on the G capital board once in a while. And what they were doing is they were like, you know, politicking uh, and sucking up. And, you know, who was the best politician? Who was the best suck up? Well, it turned out that for whatever reason, it was Jeff Immelt. This guy had gone to Dartmouth as a frat guy. had gone to Harvard Business School, you know, who's like credentialed up the wazoo. He's... Mm-hmm. His father had worked at GE's uh, jet engine business for 30 plus years, uh, and Jack fell for him. And he didn't see, because he wasn't there that often, any of the the foibles that Jeff uh, demonstrated later on, or or Jack thought he demonstrated later on. Mm -hmm. Let's come back to Jack's tenure as CEO. Of course, the 1980s were marked by the Reagan economic boom, the supply side economic boom, followed by the 1990s, which uh, to a certain extent was another booming period, uh, in part because of the um, Cold War peace dividend. So he had the opportunity during his almost 20 years in office to, to have some pretty good economic times behind at his back, number one. Number two, at that point during the 80s and 90s, GE was still very much a conglomerate, which I guess was a a 1960s, 1970s business model. And he continued with with a a slew of different acquisitions. And there were two in particular I'd like to discuss with you. Number one was RCA, and then the other was Kidder Peabody. Talk to me about those two acquisitions that that were done on Jack's watch and really driven by Jack. Well, first of all, I just, you know, clarify with the premise of the question a little bit. Yes, he had an incredible bull market, if you will, that began in 80, uh, 1982 and continued, you know, straight up to 2001, literally, you know, four days before, after Jack retired. There were plenty of hiccups along the way there. I mean, there was the stock market crash of 1987 Mm -hmm. when the market crashed 22.6% in one day. I'll, I'll never forget that because I was working at GE Capital at the time. And there was also essentially the 
what we call the credit crunch from about 1991 to 1994, where, you know, the capital markets were moribund. But Jack definitely steered the company through all of that beautifully, to be honest. And part of that was, you know, he quickly divested Utah International, which was a business that Reg Jones had been uh, a mining business of all things that, uh, that Reg Jones had bought. That was uh-huh. uh, for about $2 billion. That was the largest M&A deal of all time to that point. Jack hated that business. He thought it was, you know, commodities. He didn't want to be in that business. So uh, he quickly got out of that and he decided to buy RCA in 1985, you know, 86, which was about $6.2 billion, which was the largest, that too was the largest M&A deal uh, ever done to that point. Uh, that was front page news, the New York Times when that happened. I remember that. I remember Lazard and Felix wrote and working on that deal. I, by that time, was wanting to go to Lazard, eventually got to Lazard after G Capital. So that was definitely uh, on my radar screen. But what I hadn't realized until I was researching the book is that GE had started RCA after World War I mm-hmm. because Woodrow Wilson, the president, wanted GE to control the radio technology that it had developed uh, that was so valuable to the Allies during World War I. And he didn't want a foreign country to get it. Specifically, he didn't want England to control that. And, you know, of course, they had the Marconi uh, companies uh, that also were competing with GE on this radio technology. So he basically insisted that all the patents and all the technology be housed in what became RCA as part of GE, with GE owning 80% of it and Westinghouse owning 20% of it, not allowing GE to sell any of that technology to British Marconi, the Marconi companies. Mm -hmm. And in fact, uh, GE ended up buying a separately publicly traded company called American Marconi to create RCA. So, and then in the uh, early 1930s, for reasons that I never could really fully understand, the Justice Department basically forced GE to sell RCA. That's when it became a public company with David Sarnoff as the CEO. And so then 40, uh, 50 years later, uh, GE uh, buys it back. And everybody hails Jack as a hero for doing that deal. And he certainly was. It was one of the best deals in Wall Street history. Uh, but he was just really buying back a company that GE had once owned. Yes. Uh, I found that to be fascinating. As far as Kidder Peabody, you know, after the RCA deal, Jack was like the toast of the town, you know, because with RCA, he got NBC. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Jack also, you know, swapped with, you know, a French company, Thompson, gave GE's TV manufacturing business to Thompson and Thompson swapped with uh, GE its medical device sub business. So mm-hmm. that's how GE got into the medical big time into the medical de- manufacturing of medical devices like CAT scans and MRIs and things like that. And so that was another uh, big aspect of the RCA deal, which paid off big time. And of course, NBC was a huge home run for uh, GE and Jack loved that. He started CNBC, he started MSNBC. And so, you know, filled with like this hubris around the RCA deal, he then made the really stupid decision to buy uh, Kidder Peabody Mm -hmm. in 1986. And that became a a disaster right from the beginning. It was insider trader training charges against Marty Siegel, who had been at Kidder and gone to Drexel. And there was other trading and mortgage related uh, disasters, but the and people who told him not to do it, and people thought, what are you going to buy next? McDonald's. I mean, people thought Jack had lost the plot. And as someone who had been at G Capital during that time, and we were supposed to work with Kidder, you know, closely, that never worked. They were like these overpaid investment bankers, and we were, you know, putting capital to work. And so we were functionaries. They thought we were functionaries. We thought they were, you know, prima donnas. Uh, the, it was a huge culture clash. Big, big mistake to, to do that. And I think Jack realized that pretty quickly, but uh, there wasn't much he could do for a while. Ultimately, he sold what he could to Payne Weber in exchange for Payne Weber's stock. GE, for a while, owned 25% of Payne Weber. Mm-hmm. And then when UBS came along and so, and, and bought Payne Weber for $10 billion, GE made $2 billion plus in profit. 
And so G- Jack turned $600 million that he invested in Kidder Peabody into $2 billion profit. So even his mistakes worked out beautifully financially, even though he had a lot of headaches along the way with Kidder. Now, what about, what about computers? It seems as though, of course, the 80s and 90s were on the, on the cusp of the, the turn of the millennium. It, it seemed as though a move into the computer industry eluded him. Did you have an opportunity to talk about that? Because that, that's, of course, the future. That's the future we're living in today. Well, in fact, in the 70s, GE, in the 60s, GE was in the computer business, making computers. And the fact of the matter is it, it didn't really do a very good job. Uh, it wasn't able to compete effectively. And one of the things that Reg Jones did that made him prominent inside of the company was that he sold GE's computer uh, business sort of got GE out of the computer business so they could be done with it and not have to compete in what was a very tough business for them. And that is, uh, he sort of rode that horse to becoming CEO himself. So Jack had no interest in computers. Uh, You know, he realized that GE had a lot of things it was good at, but computers wasn't one of them and he didn't want to have anything to do with that. So there was no desire. Once they got out, they got out and he didn't want to get back in. The millennium dawns. Jack has announced his retirement. He's also announced that uh, Jeff Immelt will succeed him. And of course, that takes place in early 2001. And tell us about the somewhat inauspicious few days before Jeff Immelt assumed the CEO position at GE at when Jack was gone out the door, because it was a very critical date, right? Right. Well, Jeff took over, you know, technically on September 7th, 2001. His first day in the office was September 10th, 2001. He was, he told me he had one good day in his first year in office, in the office. Uh, that was September 10th, 2001. He, that night he went to uh, Seattle uh, I was going to have a meeting with the CEO of Boeing on September 11th, 2001. Obviously, uh, Boeing was one of GE's biggest customers, and he woke up in his hotel room and was uh, working out on his Stairmaster, turned on the TV, and, you know, boom, there was 9-11. GE had made the engines on the aircraft. Mm-hmm. GE had reinsured some of the buildings down mm-hmm. at the World uh Financial Center, World Trade Center, you know, NBC went for a week or so without any advertising, which cost GE a lot of money. Uh, two GE employees were killed that day. They thought for a little while that one of the hijackers might have been trained as a pilot at a GE a pilot training facility in Florida. It turned out to be that somebody had the same name, but it uh-huh. wasn't the same person. So, I mean, he had a lot to deal with very, very quickly. You know, after 9-11, of course, you know, the world, you know, quote-unquote changed, uh, you know, compounding what he had to deal with after 9-11, which, of course, we all had to deal with, was scandals at companies like, you know, WorldCom and Adelphia and Enron, which resulted in the passage of the Sarbanes-Oxley Act, which meant CEOs and CFOs had to, uh, sign off on their financial statements for the first time, and there was a lot more uh, regulation. And it was tough going for Jeff right out of the box. But I would say uh, the consensus was that he did a pretty darn good job for uh, the first bunch of years at GE. And of course, at that point, so we get until we come up to the financial crisis, and. The financial crisis of 08, 09, and of course, Gen, uh, GE Capital features very prominently there because GE Capital at that point was already contributing approximately 40% of the uh, the net profit to the group as a whole, was it not? 40 to 50% For- in any given year, yes. Mm-hmm. And so so you had what was essentially a, a what the world thought of as an industrial conglomerate with this shadow bank, if you will, 
uh, GE Capital off to the side, which was growing larger and larger in terms of contributing to profitability as a whole. Talk to me about those days, those dark days, when the way that GE Capital used to fund itself was largely through commercial paper. Define what commercial paper is for our listeners and, and tell them how how that was a, a, a kind of an, a near-death experience for GE Capital. The biggest, best companies, the ones with the best credit ratings, and GE at that time had a AAA credit rating, can't get any better than that. There are no quadruple-A credit-rated companies. GE had a AAA credit rating, which allowed it to borrow in the commercial paper market, which is uh, short-term unsecured borrowings, essentially. So there are big pools of capital out there that make that are willing to make short-term loans, 30, 60, 90 days to companies with great credit like GE. Uh, they're unsecured loans. Basically, they just roll over. You know, obviously, uh, they have to pay interest on that money, but it's very low rate of interest. It's like the same rate of interest almost that, you know, the U.S. government can borrow at. So if you can borrow uh, that uh, inexpensively, then turn around and lend it out for a high interest rate, including maybe even taking equity in the companies that are borrowing the money from you, you know, that becomes a pretty good business. And that was what we sort of called, you know, arbitraging GE's AAA credit rating. Uh, and Jack, uh, of course, uh, realized that. And Jeff, uh, even, uh, you know, even though he was more of a marketing guy than a finance guy, he understood that uh, as well. And, you know, that was an incredible business uh, for a very long time. Like any bank, and how do banks get into trouble? They get into trouble. Uh, and, and by the way, G Capital is also largely unregulated, uh, unlike most other banks. It was a, uh, an unregulated bank. It was like the third or fourth largest bank in the country, but it was unregulated, which means that you know, nobody was really watching what GE Capital was doing and how much leverage it had and how it was financing itself, funding itself. But banks get into trouble when they, you know, borrow short term and lend long term. So if you borrow and you have to pay back that money in 30, 60 or 90 days and you turn around and you lend it out to somebody for seven, 10 or 15 years, then, you know, there's sort of a mismatch between timing uh, your borrowing and when you pay that back. And you know, that's fine as long as the commercial paper market and the, your funding market is working, working well and people are stepping up to make those payments and to provide that money to you. But, you know, in the days and weeks after Lehman Brothers collapsed, that whole uh, market, you'll remember... Uh, you know, broke, uh, you know, just completely dried up and froze up. You know, one of the leading money market funds, you know, quote unquote, broke the buck. And so uh, GE lost, uh, was in very, you know, then the largest uh, borrower in the commercial paper market, something like $150 billion of borrowings, uh, was in danger of not being able to roll over its commercial paper. If that meant they would have to pay back that $150 billion, uh, without being able to roll it over and keep borrowing it, and it couldn't, it couldn't do that. So uh, Jeff Immelt, he might have a little bit of a problem on his hands, but he was focused, of course, on the Wall Street banks having this same problem. No one was focused on GE Capital because no one could have even conceived that GE Capital could have this problem. GE was like our AAA-rated credit mm -hmm. company, you know, AAA-rated, our most valuable company, our most respected company. How could it be on the verge of not being able to finance itself and potentially uh, going into bankruptcy? But it was. Same day that uh, Lehman Brothers uh, went down the tubes, September 15, 2008, uh, Jeff Immelt was in Hank Paulson's office basically telling him, although there's a dispute about this, Jeff Immelt remembers it differently than Hank Paulson does, but whatever, I'll, let's go with Hank Paulson's version. He was the Treasury Secretary said that Jeff Immelt came to him and said, I can't uh, roll my commercial paper, I'm in big trouble. Set in motion all sorts of uh, events, including uh, Sheila Baer at the FDIC, essentially agreeing to backstop GE's ability to tap into the commercial paper market. One of the reasons, I guess, that uh, GE Capital found itself in such dire straits was that those commercial paper 
facilities didn't have commercial bank backup lines of credit, which in the event that you're not able to sell your commercial paper into the, uh, into the marketplace, a bank can draw down on its backup credit facilities from other banks. GE didn't have that. Did the board of GE... Well, they didn't have $150 billion. Well, <laughs> they had some lines of credit, but not $150 billion left, right? How did the how did the board of GE respond to that after the crisis was over? What did they do with Jeff? Did they did they pin it on him? Did they say that this yeah. was uh, uh, that he was to that he should have foreseen this? Well, the truth is he should have foreseen it, and he was warned about it years earlier by uh, Bill Gross, you know, the so-called bond king at PIMCO, who told him that he wasn't going to buy GE's bonds because he thought they were. Too risky, uh, given the way GE was financing itself, and basically Jeff kind of ignored him. He ignored his own treasurer, who told me that he went on trips with Jeff down to see the rating agencies, and the rating agencies were trying to light a fire under Jeff and warn him about the risks that he was uh, taking inherent in uh, GE Capital, and uh, basically he ignored them as well. He ignored Jim Grant, uh, Jim Grant being the fabulous, brilliant author of something called Grant's Interest Rate Observer, mm-hmm. which is sort of the Bible of the credit markets in this country. And he had written repeatedly about the risks inherent in GE Capital that Jeff Immelt was ignoring. So he had been warned and warned and warned, and he ignored it until he couldn't suddenly, you know, he's, he, he likened it to the Zulu warriors yes. uh, attacking well, at that point, there was, you know, it wasn't like the board uh, had time to blame him. They had the GE had to act. Yes. Uh, and had to act and act fast uh, to avoid. They had drawn up the papers for filing GE Capital for bankruptcy in 2008, mm-hmm. you know, if they had to. And basically, Jeff Immelt went into firefighting mode. He, uh, Warren Buffett, uh, invested $3 billion in GE in preferred stock. Uh, as he had in Goldman Sachs and in Bank of America, uh, GE raised $12 billion of new equity after saying uh, he wouldn't do that. He cut the dividend after saying he wouldn't do that. And then he went to Sheila Bear, hat in hand, uh, and begged her essentially to allow GE to be in the same sort of guaranteed pool of financing that other banks on Wall Street had access to so that GE wouldn't be sort of culled from the pack, if you will. Then uh, he also set in motion his decision to sell NBC Universal mm-hmm. to Comcast, which he did in 2009 without an auction, which uh, you know I scratched my head about. Uh, but he decided, uh, you know, he thought he had the right buyer. I don't think Comcast picked his pocket. Certainly went around. Uh, Comcast went around telling people. It picked Jeff, uh, Jeff's pocket, you know, sold NBC Universal for about $30 million billion. And, you know, pre pandemic, NBC Universal was worth about $100 billion. So mm. JE left some money on the table there. You know, a lot of things were set in motion by the 2008 financial crisis. I mean, everybody knows because there have been books written about it and, and documentary films and scripted dramas uh, about what happened in the 2008 financial crisis, but nobody really focused on what happened at GE and GE Capital. And I didn't even realize, frankly, and I had worked there, uh, how bad it had gotten and how close it had come to bankruptcy and what Jeff Immelt had to do to save it. I mean, I, I knew what happened at Bear Stearns. I knew what happened at Goldman. I knew what happened at Merrill and Lehman. and yeah, that. But I hadn't focused on what was going on at the largest non-bank bank in the, in the, in the country. Let's move on from GE Capital. Of course, Jeff's biggest acquisition was Alstom, was it not? The the big power yes. generation company. Talk to me about that because that really becomes, uh, that leads into his eventual departure from the company. You know, we need to talk about that. We need to go back to uh, something that happened as Jack was leaving the company. He was originally supposed to leave the company in uh, 2000. But as he was beginning to think about leaving uh, one of GE's big competitors, United Technologies reached a deal to buy Honeywell. GE had looked at honey buying Honeywell earlier in the year, decided it was too expensive. 
through the course of the year, Honeywell's had sort of stumbled and its earnings and stock price had fallen quite a bit. And United Technologies uh, pounced and bought it. And Jack decided that, no, 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 he couldn't let United Technologies buy Honeywell. The GE had to buy Honeywell. So he immediately uh, topped uh, United Technologies deal. He broke up United Technologies deal with Honeywell and GE bought, agreed to buy Honeywell. And then he had to get it through the regulators. The U.S. quickly approved the deal, but much to Jack's frustration, the European Union put all these conditions on GE closing the deal, including demanding that GE sell a bunch of businesses out of Honeywell or GE to make it palatable to them. And Jack just was spent time, you know, in, uh, in, in Brussels negotiating uh, this himself with his team, just got more and more ang- angrier and angrier at what was the European Union uh, and, and told me that he felt that he wanted to buy an 18-hole golf course, but they only gave him 15 holes. 15 holes. Jack decided to pull the plug mm-hmm. on the Honeywell deal. So what was going to reduce GE's reliance on GE Capital and would have happened beginning in 2001 in a big way because that was a $40 billion deal uh, and clearly the largest in GE's history, that Jack decided to walk away. He could have done it. He could have closed that deal and it would have been a $36 billion deal or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, there would have been some parts that he wouldn't have been able to own. Okay. But it would have effectively diversified GE's industrial business right. uh, away from the financial services business, which is we were just talking about, uh, you know, bit GE in the butt in 2008. So Jeff's had it on his strategic agenda to diversify GE away from financial services business. And he first did that by buying buying Amersham, this big UK healthcare device business for $9 billion. And people thought he'd overpaid for that, but that was probably one of the best deals he did. He he bought a uh, the, uh, the windmill business out of Enron, which was another uh, very good deal that Jeff made. Uh, he picked it up out of bankruptcy, so he bought it cheaply. Of course, he went on this campaign to diversify GE, you know, make GE more of an industrial company than a financial services company because he didn't really understand GE capital, you know. But he, but he made a lot of mistakes. He bought a bunch of water businesses that didn't work out. He made, bought a bunch of oil and gas businesses that you know people are still scratching their heads about. And one of the businesses that he decided to buy was uh, Alstom, which was you know the fourth largest competitor in the power generation business, which was owned by. French company and he bought you know most of the assets of of the French company Alstom the power asset for like you know 14 billion dollars you know a lot of people thought that he overpaid a lot of people he was who were reporting to him wanted him to back out of the deal he was also forced the EU also forced uh, him to divest businesses some people thought that gave him the opening he needed to get out of the deal but Jeff decided uh, he was going to close a, on the deal instead. It took, you know, like 18 months to close the deal. The business didn't perform well. And by the time, you know, he closed it, he kind of had this albatross. He was saddled with this albatross. And the struggle to operate that business and to make it uh, go. And, you know, frankly, I still think it's a struggling business. Mm-hmm. It's going to be spun off as GE Vernova. You know, that's sort of a computer-generated name. I think that business is going to struggle. I think GE's healthcare business, which is going to be the first spinoff, will be do well, and the jet engine business will do well once you know the economy recovers. The power systems business—I don't know—that strikes me as a business that's going to struggle. Let's move on to Jeff naming his successor, because the the fellow who was heading up the power generation facility felt that it was his birthright, if you will, to be yeah. CEO. But uh, yeah, Jeff, Steve Bowles. Steve Bowles, but he decided in favor of John Flannery. And then John Flannery, all of a sudden, was faced with the arrival of shareholder activist Nelson Peltz and uh, John Garden on the, on the board of GE. Talk to me about the transition from Imelt to Flannery and Flannery's relatively short tenure as CEO. Well, when, you know, Jeff Immelt was selected, one of Jack's uh, 
logic for that was that he thought that Jeff Immel would uh, reign for 20 years, like Jack, Jack had. He was younger than the other guys. You know, part of the reason Jack picked him is because he was younger, just like Reg Jones had picked Jack because he was younger. Jack had a 20-year reign. You know, Jeff was going to have a 20-year reign, which is, you know, unbelievably long for a CEO. And mm-hmm. I'm not even sure what the logic is for that, but, you know, that's sort of what thinking was. Jeff made it 17 years to June 16-ish years to June 2017, uh, relinquished the title in August of 2017. He was, it was not voluntary. Mm -hmm. He was fired uh, by the board and he was fired by the board in part with the prodding of Nelson Peltz and Ed Garden at Tryon, who were not yet on the board. Ed Garden didn't go on the board until uh, John Flannery invited him on the board. But they had by then bought their $2.5 billion stake in GE at Jeff's urging. He had urged them to buy the stake. He was friendly with Nelson Peltz. He knew Ed Garden from growing up and going to Dartmouth. And so he thought that Tryon would sort of ratify uh, Jeff's uh, strategic brilliance, thought that he would ratify his decision to buy Alstom, that he would ratify his decision to get out of GE, to sell GE Capital because it was a SIFI, a systemically important financial institution, and was costing GE a lot of money, and the feds were crawling all over the place, and he would use the money from selling uh, GE Capital to, to buy back GE stock, reducing the denominator in the earnings per share calculation, and that GE would earn $2 a share in 2018. And and Jeff just kept pushing and pushing and pushing and promising $2 a share until finally in uh, May of 2007, he went to this uh, uh, analyst meeting at Longboat Key, Florida, uh, where every, every other year, you know, it's called ESG, a meeting where uh, members, companies in the power business, the power generation industry meet with Wall Street analysts. And his performance there was a total flop. Mm-hmm. He had come back from the Middle East. He was tired. He was exhausted. He was kept pushing the $2 a share theme and it wasn't happening. And, you know, his CFO didn't think it could happen. Nobody thought GE could earn $2 a share in 2018, but Jeff would not give it up. Uh, performance at that meeting, basically Wall Street uh, lost confidence in Jeff after that. And at that point, uh, Ed Garden at Tryon basically said, you know, les jeux sont faits. They put into motion much quicker than they had anticipated having to do the wheels of succession. And I would say that Jeff never liked Steve Bowles. He didn't think he had performed. He tried to fire him uh, on any number of occasions. And board members kept bringing Steve Bowles back. <laughs> Steve Bowles once had resigned and then thought about it over the weekend and came back. Uh, Steve Bowles, of course, thought he had a chance to become CEO. He had no chance, but he didn't really quite realize it. It was really between John Flannery, who was running the healthcare division, which he had basically turned around, and and Jeff Bornstein, who was the CFO of uh, GE, who had also worked at GE Capital, and who was this, you know, well-regarded, but maybe not an obvious CEO type. I mean, basically, they flubbed the succession process. Mm-hmm. They really did not happen too quickly, mm-hmm. even though they supposedly, you know, had been planning on succession for a long time, which, of course, is the thing that is the biggest responsibility of the CEO. But it, but everything got compacted because of the decision that, that you know that Jeff mm-hmm. had to go sooner rather than later from my perspective having known John Flannery for a long time I thought it was a great decision that John was the CEO I think he thought it was a, a great decision uh, who can resist being named CEO of GE but it turned to, out to uh, a pyrrhic victory John discovered quickly upon his arrival in the corner office so John Flannery is CEO for all of 15 months. And then in another palace coup, the board essentially removes him on very short notice and installs for the first time ever in GE history, an outsider as CEO, Larry Culp, 
who had recently joined the board from Danaher Industries. Give us a sense of, of that coup. And of course, Culp continues to be the CEO to this day. And it sounds as though Culp has used part of the playbook that John Flannery had put together for the recovery of GE as, uh, as his own playbook to get GE back on the, uh, back on the boards. All of that is true. I mean, John Flannery brought Larry Culp onto the board of GE. Uh, he had been the CEO of Danaher back when uh, John and I shared an office together. We used to talk about Danaher. Uh, we used to talk about the Rails brothers who started Danaher and how you know successful it was as sort of a mini conglomerate, and the stock had done incredibly well. Uh, and uh, John was a big fan of Larry's stewardship of Danaher and that sort of small central office concept concept and he you know GE had a very big you know uh, corporate office and I think John had pretty much decided that that time that that model was no longer effective and wanted to you know shrink it down so he brought Larry onto the board to do that he also brought Ed Garden onto the board from Tryon, Ed Garden was a big fan of Larry Culp's. It was under John's tenure that the healthcare, long-term healthcare liability, finally reared its ugly head, and you know they had to put in something like fifteen billion dollars of capital down to GE Capital to, you know, satisfy the regulators. The, there were all sorts of problems that continued to crop up in the power business. You know, huge losses. And they had to write off the, the, the goodwill related to the Alstom deal. It was sort of like one piece of bad news after another. People thought John Flannery uh, was acting too slowly. It was sort of too contemplative, wasn't uh, maybe a forceful enough leader. Uh, to that, I would say that he was taking his time and trying to figure out what the hell was going on mm-hmm. before he made uh, any rash decisions. And then, you know, the stock... When he took over, it was like $25 a share. You know, all of these revelations just cratered the stock. You know, it was eventually got to like $10 a share. And, you know, when stock gets to, you know, goes from 25 to 10, even if he's got all the right answers, it's not going to matter. You know, if you've got Nelson Peltz in there, you're not going to survive very long under those circumstances. Uh, so I think that, the, you know, the, the writing was on the wall. Les Jeux sont faits. And, even in the, in the in the middle of that, uh, you know, before he realized what was quite going on to his detriment, he had come up with this project Eisenhower, which is his plan for splitting the company up into three pieces uh, that the board that he brought to the board, the board rejected, sort of tabled it. Then come October 1st, 2018, he, you know, he was removed by Larry Culp, you know, Larry Culp. Mm-hmm. who's a board member and the lead independent director summoned him to Boston one day where G had moved and uh, over the weekend and said, you know, well, the board has made a decision that you're gone. That was it. That was the last time John Flannery was in his office. They also removed him from the board, mm-hmm. which really can't be done without right. notice, without shareholders voting on removal of board members. They just like defied all of these corporate governance rules. And Larry Culp emerges with Ed Garden as the new CEO. And a first time ever that a GE CEO had a contract, he had a four year contract paying him like 25 million a year and heavily equity incentive incented. And, uh, you know, John was gone after 15 months. And, you know, Larry is taken over and heralded as the guy who's going to save GE, but he really hasn't stock price hasn't changed at all of literally at all under Larry Culp's rule. He took over John's plan to split the company up and proclaimed it his own. He recut his options and made them worth a hundred million dollars. Even though the stock hadn't done anything. So Larry Culp has enriched himself, but I think he hasn't done much for his own reputation, even though, you know, I'm sure he thinks he's done a great job, even though there's no evidence that he has. Well, your book ends with, Jack Welch's funeral at St. Patrick's Cathedral on March 1st, 2020, which in a sense, perfect timing. It was just before the onset of the pandemic. So it was one of the last times that the great and the good were able to assemble at St. Patrick's Cathedral. Tell us about that funeral, because the funeral, in a sense, was a metaphor, if you will, for the the old way of managing the CEO succession process? 
Well, that's why I wanted to end the book with it because, you know, it is a metaphor for not only it wasn't a metaphor for Jack's death, obviously it was Jack's death, but a metaphor for the death of this company. By then it was a chronicle of a death foretold that I was writing to uh, borrow a, a phrase from Gar Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Uh, I was there. I saw it with my own eyes. I sat in the back. I'm sure nobody noticed me, but you know, it was quite a collection. It was not full. I mean, St. Patrick's Cathedral is a big place. Yes. Maybe about half full. Uh, the the you know Ken Langone sp spoke, who Jeff had, uh, Jack had appointed to the GE board, and Jeff had removed from the GE board. Uh, Mike Barnacle spoke, uh, was one of Jack's longtime friends from Nantucket and from golfing and from NBC and MSNBC. He was uh, really gave a touching eulogy. It was Paul Bearers was kind of legendary. Quite a gathering. Jeff Immelt showed up. He you know, asked a friend, been his friend from GE, to go with him. He had come from California. I think he was nervous about what people would think of him mm -hmm. uh, being there. And, you know, obviously by then I'm sure Jack had told people privately what he thought. He'd already told me what he thought. Mm -hmm. So it was, uh, and then the next thing you know, we've got a pandemic on our hands. So it literally, literally was the last thing any of us did before we no one saw each other again for two plus years. Well, Bill, in the remaining few minutes of the show, can you bring this vast sweeping corporate intrigue and history to a close? Well, I mean, I, I think it's just a credible story. It's an epic story. There was this, you know, you know, I sort of felt I had done a corporate autopsy. There was a <laughs> dead body on the floor. How did it get there? And, yeah, I mean, I, I would say that it was an incredible story, uh, Jim, of, of hype, of hubris, uh, of the demise of this once great company. And I had performed this corporate autopsy, if you will. There was a dead body on, on the ground. I wanted to know how it got there. And, and as someone who had worked there and knew these people, I wanted to know how does a company as revered and respected and as important as GE, you know, obviously nobody gives it much of a thought nowadays, but once upon a time, it was the Apple, Microsoft, Google, uh, all rolled up into one. If Apple suddenly disappeared, we'd want to know uh, how that uh, how that happened and why that happened and how could that have happened. And I think it's, a, you know, a singular story. It's an epic drama. If you know, there were so many Harvard Business School cases mm -hmm. uh, about GE on the way up, and I've yet to see one about GE on the way down. So, you know, my book should be, not to toot my own horn or anything, but it should be used in business schools mm -hmm. so people understand the arc of the narrative, the, you know, what jo Joseph Schumpeter describes as, you know, creative destruction in corporations and in capitalism. And this is you know, this is a kind of exhibit A of that. You know, it survived for 130 years, but just because it did didn't mean that it was going to survive forever. You know, now it's gone. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as Jeff Bezos, you know, tells uh, his employees at Amazon, we're not going to be around forever. We're going to disappear at some point. So let's see if we can hold that day off for as long as possible. Mm -hmm. Well, Bill, I'd like to thank you very much for being our guest today. You brought a unique perspective, as you said, to this autopsy of GE. You had worked for the company. You spoke firsthand to, to most of the players, to three of the four CEOs, and most importantly, to Jack Welsh, who essentially built up this phenomenal track record of success, both for the company and for himself. So once again, thank you so much for being with us today, for sharing your time and your perspective on the book. Thanks for having me, Jim. I really, I really appreciate being here with you. My pleasure. And Bill, where can our listeners buy a copy of the book? I assume wherever books are sold. <laughs> and Bill, specifically, where can our listeners contact you and how can they follow up with you? Well, I have a, I have a website, uh, williamcohan.com, which has all my books and um, a lot of my articles that I've written. And there's a way to contact me uh, through that website if, if listeners want to do that. I'm happy to answer questions from people and, you know, happy to be in touch with people. And what is your Twitter handle? At William Cohan. Terrific. You know, hopefully that is good for a little while until Twitter disappears. <laughs> 
Well, thanks again, Bill, for joining us today and for talking about your book, Power Failure. I thoroughly recommend it. I really enjoyed it. And in fact, um, I'll probably go back and reread it. It was it was a great read. Thank you very much, Jim. I really appreciate it. It's always a pleasure to be on with you. Thank you. And for our listeners, today's episode is number 349. The San Francisco Experience comes to you on 19 platforms, Apple, Spotify, Pandora, Amazon Music, and Odyssey, with listeners in 65 countries. This has been the San Francisco Experience with Jim Herlihy coming to you from San Francisco. 